Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being such a good and gracious God. We thank you for expressing your love for us through your son, Jesus, for the life that he lived and the death that he died, for rising again from the grave and ascending into heaven and sending us the power of your spirit, Lord, so that your promises of redemption and of eternal life, life with you, may be possible and real and experienced even here and now. Lord, as we go to your word to continue our worship of you now, for all of these things, and because you just simply are worthy, we pray that your spirit will speak to us a word of truth. And I pray, Lord, that I may diminish while your word increases. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I went out to dinner with a bunch of friends that I have. Maybe not, it wasn't that many, but I have a bunch of friends. And we have been friends. I know, that's hard for some of you to believe, right? They like me. And um, we've been friends for 55 years. It's an amazing thing. And uh, I went out to dinner with these guys, and one of the guys didn't come. And he said he couldn't come. But at dinner, when I started to ask some questions, I learned that one of my other buddies defriended from Facebook the other guy. 55 years! And he defriended him from Facebook. And I went, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, these are guys who are arrested adolescents when they get together. My wife will ask me after dinner like that, so, how was it? What did you talk about? And I said, there is absolutely nothing redeeming in anything that was said. I can't tell you any of it. They constantly are like junior hires, nibbling at each other and making fun of one another and attacking one another. But when it came to these Facebook posts, these two guys were really struggling. And do you know what those posts were about? Guess. Politics. You betcha. As the Nobel laureate said, the times, they are a-changing. Politically, these are some of the most contentious times that I can ever recall. And there is less civility today than I remember in any of my years growing up. We live in a democratic system that calls for the electorate to be responsibly engaged in that system. And that includes debating issues, elections, governance, and debating how those things happen, even as they are happening. Now, many of you may not know this, but I was a political science major in college. So I'm always fascinated by it. And I believe 
that our involvement and the democratic system is one of the best systems in the world, but just like everything else in the world, it is flawed, it is sinful, it is not the standard of God and His perfection. Now while politics are important, our highest allegiance is not political. Not to the political process, be it voting or elections or governance. Our highest allegiance is to the defining relationship that we have with Jesus. And this would include whatever sense of justice that we believe we should stand up for and speak, right? In the political discourse. That that too must come out of the defining relationship that we have with Jesus. Now Jesus didn't say, vote Republican. And Jesus didn't say, vote Democratic. He didn't get into any of that. But Jesus has said that we should live justly, follow God's Word, right? That we are to be holy. What I want to say today is that what we do and how we handle ourselves in the political discourse of these days must reflect the Lord's claim upon us to proclaim hope to a dying world reconciling people to God and to one another. We must never forget that we are first, above all else, ambassadors of Christ to the world. Paul says, in the second letter of Corinth, where he says that, he says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That we are to enter into reconciling people to God and thereby to one another. Is there anything more important than that? What did Jesus say? They'll know my disciples by what? The love. And what does that love do? It reconciles people to God and reconciles people to one another, doesn't it? It certainly has changed my life. I basically didn't like people when I was younger. I didn't trust them. They hurt me. I liked my friends when they didn't hurt me. But Jesus has called me to love everyone, even those who hurt me. So that I might be an ambassador. So that they might know the saving love of God, so that their lives might be set free from the bondage that, that, uh, to sin that, that just terrorizes all of us and keeps us from God's very best for us. What I want to say to you today, if you feel called to enter into the political discourse we're voting this week, right? So I'm sure that that discourse is going to heat up even more in the next couple of days. But I believe when the election is over, 
we're going to see an even hotter discourse afterwards because they say that margins are razor thin and we are so polarized as people. So we should be prepared for that. If, if this is an issue of justice for you or if it's just an issue of how do I connect with people where they live which is relevant so that I can love them to God, then I want to provide some guidance to you today from Scripture that helps us in how to enter into this kind of discourse. What I want to say to you today is I am not promoting a Democratic or Republican perspective. And the last time I entered into an issue of politics on immigration and refugees, I was accused of, number one, being liberal, and number two, being ultra-conservative. <laughs> so, you can accuse me of both, but don't accuse me just of one. Scripture gives us guidance in how to conduct ourselves in a manner that will not discredit or diminish our witness to the gospel. That's what I'm talking about. That's the guidance, right? Your credibility as a Christian, God's love for the world. How do you maintain that credibility in this kind of an atmosphere? Well, James is very helpful, the letter to James. And so we're going to look at it. It is a pragmatic exhortation to holy living. The diaspora, when the Jews were expelled from Palestine by the Romans in 66 AD, sent the Jewish Christians out throughout the Roman Empire. And James wrote his letter to them. They were immigrants settling throughout the empire. And God would use them to spread the gospel worldwide. But it required that they remain faithful to the gospel. That they would be gospel people. And James says to them right at the very beginning of his letter that they are facing many trials. Clearly as immigrants, people didn't trust them. They didn't like them. They were fearful of them. These people had to establish new homes, new work. There was a lot to deal with. So along with the trials of these experiences came temptations. That's what James says. But he says, God uses this to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God helps us to become more and more like Christ. And James says this about handling these trials and temptations. That they call for the wisdom of God. Look, look here. If any of you lacks wisdom, he says, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. In these contentious political times, if we are to enter into discourse, for whatever reason, we need God's wisdom. James 
chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 provides principles that really help us to communicate in a manner that resonates with the gospel. So I want to call you to that. I want to encourage you to read through that on your own. Today we're going to focus primarily on verse 19. We're going to read it through verse 22 because those really hang together and are important. And we're going to outline the rest which help to illustrate it through verse 27. So let's, let's read the text together. Verses 19 through 22. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not only hearers, deceiving yourselves. Now in the larger text, This is kind of what's happening in a general outline. In verse 19, we are being instructed to be intentional about our communication. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. In verses 20 through 22, we are being instructed to be righteous in our actions. That is, we're not to follow the ways of the world, but we are to be hearers and doers of the Word. We are to receive them with meekness. Do you guys know what meekness is? I used to think meekness was weakness. certainly sounded that way to me. And coming from a kind of a rough culture, the idea of meekness was very unacceptable to me. So when people would say to me, you have to be meek, I would say God didn't make me for that. That's not true. I didn't know what meekness meant. It would be, oh, I'd be into my 50s and made mistake as pastors often do and handle the situation without meekness. And it, it got people stirred up. And I remember God bringing me to that Word and making me study it. Nobody told me about it. God just brought it to my heart. And I began to study it. And I learned that meekness was strength under control. We are to receive that Word with strength, but under control. Be doers and hearers of the word. And then in verses 23 through 27, there are illustrations provided for us. One is a negative and the other is a positive. So during this week, as you look at this, I hope you'll keep this outline in mind because it will help you. We just simply don't have enough time to focus on it all. So I'm going to focus primarily on being intentional in your communication. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. The big idea today is this. How you communicate must be consistent with your witness for the Lord. You cannot tell people that God loves them in an angry, hostile manner. 
and think that in any way your message is credible. Your delivery matters. Your character matters. It is a witness to the work of Christ in you. So let's look at that work of Christ in you. Be quick to hear, the Scripture says. The emphasis here is on being eager, sharp, keen to listen. And the order of action in these three steps or or these three action items says that listening is more important than speaking. But listening requires that you bridle the tongue. And James talks about the tongue in chapter 3 and chapter 4 to a much greater extent. We are to control the natural impulse to speak first and listen second. Listening. Listening begins with God. Listening to God means paying attention to God's Word above all else. This is the Rosetta Stone of knowing how to talk with God and understanding how God talks to you. Without it, we have tremendous difficulty in trying to figure it out. We could talk about, well, the Holy Spirit speaks to me, but we don't have that guide, that word that is there that we can look down upon, reach into, digest, and understand then what the Holy Spirit is really saying to us, because otherwise we can interpret it in any way. But God is consistent in His character. And he never speaks out of both sides of his mouth. So we learn first to listen to God through his word. The wisdom of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So wisdom comes from God. From God's word. But listening to God also means listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is very important to us because the Holy Spirit helps us to understand how to apply that Word. He's involved in helping us to understand that Word, but also, not just the principles that will guide us, but there is nothing in the Scripture that says, do it now. There is nothing in the Scriptures that say, yes, you should walk through that door and test it. But the Holy Spirit says things like that to us, as long as they're in line with the principles, the general principles. So we want to listen to the Word of God, and we want to listen to the Spirit of God. But the instruction to be quick to listen doesn't limit it to God. It has no qualifiers on it. So we must also listen to others. 
How else will you know how to respond to people? How else will you know how to serve them or meet their needs on behalf of God if you don't listen to them? Most communication problems are listening. I could tell you that by the time I was, oh, maybe in my late 30s, I realized that I went to work and I spent most of my day asking questions and listening to people. And I came home and was not as avid about that with my wife or with my children. And I realized that was a serious mistake. Now I'm older and I'm prone to the same serious mistake. I don't always want to listen to people because I go, I know where this is going. Time's running short, so I just want to cut people off. But, you know, as I studied this, I realized I have to be more disciplined in listening to people. I have to ask more questions. I need more clarification. When, when I leave a person, I ought to feel that I know that person at least I know what they wanted to communicate to me. There's an old saying. It says God gave you two ears and one mouth so you can listen twice as much. And we all do well to follow that. Now the truth is we're not naturally prone to be quick to listen. Our natural impulse and our habits are to be quick to speak. And our lack of listening, or, and even our ability to listen, reflects this. In my background and training in counseling, one of the things I learned about, and this goes way back, they don't talk in this language anymore, but they, they taught me about Rogerian listening. Carl Rogers was a psychologist who developed a whole um, school of counseling and therapy. And he based it upon what we think of today as active listening, but I learned it as Rogerian listening. And it's learning to really listen to the person. Listen to their words, but also listen to their bodies, listen to how they're saying it, and having the capacity to feed back to people what they are communicating. Now you might not realize it, but most communication problems break down in the hearing. A lot of us are poor communicators and don't know how to get it across, but we're terrible at listening to one another. When I've done a lot of conflict resolution, I don't care whether it was couples, I don't care whether it was my work with teens or my work with men, Inevitably, what I find is that people don't know how to listen. I will put one person in a chair here and one person in a chair here. It's called dialoguing chairs. And when there is a conflict and there's a problem, you allow one person to start out and present their viewpoint. Typically, they'll say way more than the person can digest. So that person who's speaking needs to learn how to speak more succinctly and clearly. But here's the real rub. The person who's listening, they stop listening. 
At some point, they either can't process it because it's too much, or at some point, they hear what they want to argue. And they begin formulating their response rather than paying attention to what the person is saying. And when they try to feed back to that person what's been said, unable to do so, the person clarifies. And I could tell you, when you start doing this, I can eat up an hour time with people in a heartbeat and they communicate very, very little. It takes time. Because people have to learn how to really hear. And once they learn how to really hear, then they've got to learn how to really speak and be succinct. And in dialoguing chairs, the basic rule is you cannot communicate back to the person until you've digested everything they've said and be able to feed it back to them at a level that's satisfactory. You know, I've never gone through this exercise and found that people wouldn't be reconciled to one another. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't mean it can't happen. I would imagine if I got my two buddies together, they'd still be arguing about it but maybe not. Listening carefully communicates some very important things. First, it communicates a genuine interest in people, that they matter. They matter more than your own thoughts. Second, it communicates a knowledge, a knowledge of what they're saying to you, that you're, you're absorbing that, but also a knowledge of their person, because this matters to them. And they're engaged in it. Third, it communicates respect. Because before you speak, you're allowing them to speak. You're giving them your respect. And third, in all of this, it communicates love, doesn't it, in a general way. And that's consistent with the message of God's love. That people really do matter to him. It is only by listening carefully that we communicate in a manner that reflects God's love for the person. And what happens is our credibility quotient actually goes up. You ever get heard by somebody really heard? Tell me that you didn't find them more credible when they spoke. You do. You'll listen to them. You're more prone to it. Okay, the second instruction is to be slow to speak. If we've begun by bridling the tongue so that we listen, now the tongue is loosened. But we are to use it with self-control. James chapter 3 goes into this very point and he does talk about bridling the tongue just as a horse is bridled. The emphasis here is on restraint and intentionality in speaking. It is not about speaking slowly, such as enunciating, but rather it is about not being hasty or reckless in your speech. The wisdom of Proverbs says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
And James chapter 3, I love the way the message paraphrases it, so I'm going to read it to you in that. A word out of your mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. It only takes a spark, remember, to set off a forest fire. A careless or wrongly placed word out of your mouth can do that. By our speech, we can ruin the world, turn harmony to chaos, throw mud on a reputation, send the whole world up in smoke and go up in smoke with it. Smoke right from the pit of hell. Again, that's a paraphrase of James. Words have power. That's what he's saying. Words have power to harm and hurt, and they have power to help and heal. And the imagery here is this bit in a horse's mouth. Now, there are horses that are friendly and kind. When I was on vacation, we stayed at a bed and breakfast that was in a state that was a, a little apartment on a stable. And they had this great big, I don't know, it was a horse from like Denmark or Amsterdam or something. I forget what it was called, but big black horse. Friendliest horse you want to see. And of course, everybody's outside petting a horse, and I'm like, yeah, it's just a horse. I'm a city kid. I ain't impressed. And I had an apple in my hand. The horse walked all the way over to the house. I thought he was coming in because he wanted my apple. He was friendly. And he didn't really need a bit to control him. But some horses, they're a bit more wild, a bit more obstinate. In either case, when you put a bit in the mouth of a horse and you put a bridle on him, you can control him and make that horse useful. And God wants a bit in our mouth so that we can be useful when we speak. What will help us here is to take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. In there, it is talking about holy living and speaks very clearly to how we should be speaking and how we should be dealing with such communication, being intentional about it. So the first thing it says in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. That's a text to go look at too if you want to know more about communicating. It says, speak honestly. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Speak honestly. But the second thing it says is to attack the problem and not the person. Let the thief... No longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have nothing to share with anyone in need. Now, Paul could have went off and said, you know, that thieving scumbag, it's over there at Emphasis. You just ought to take, that guy's lower than the lowest thing in the ocean. I mean, he could have attacked, isn't that the political debate today? Don't attack the person. Attack the problem. That's what we see as an example here of how to communicate. And then we're told to be intentional in the manner of our speech. Use words that help and heal. Let no corrupting or coarse talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The point, right, of resonating with our witness is what this is talking about. Our credibility to the gospel. And then he says, follow God's way. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Treat people as God treats you. Whether they're believers or not. Because God loves them. That's the message of the gospel. They matter. They matter to him and they should matter to us. Now there is a scripture in this Ephesians 4, one verse that I've left out. And we're going to get to it when we get to the third movement. So I just want you to know that. The manner of our speech is that it should be handled under control so that our witness is consistent and credible of God's love for people. Now here's the third and and final instruction. Be slow to anger. The assumption is that with trials and temptations come frustration and pain. And the natural reaction is that we will be quick to speak and quick to anger. But we're not to follow the pattern of the natural fallen world. We are to bridle our anger just as we bridle our words. We are to function with meekness, right? Strength under control. We are to exercise restraint when it comes to our anger. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. My dad used to say to me as a kid, I would get so angry. And of course, it would be years later that I would realize he was a really angry guy too. Probably a really angry kid. So he knew exactly what he was looking at. But he would just sit there and he would let me stew in my anger and he would say to me, Craig, you'd cut your nose off to spite your face. Any of you ever hear that? The point was, Your anger ain't going to get you what you want. It's only going to hurt you. And by the time I was a young adult, I figured that out. Being slow to anger means that you should be intentional in dealing with your anger. Don't react, respond. Response is a choice. Don't entertain anger until it becomes rage, because if you do, it will. And that was the allusion to a spark can set off a whole forest fire ablaze, as James says in chapter 3. Anger destroys our credibility. It makes sure that the message and the messenger do not line up. People will not believe in the saving hope of the Lord 
and God's love that we declare if we are just angry people expressing the same kind of anger that the rest are in this political discourse. Instead, we are to be slow in anger. Now, this is the other verse from Ephesians 4, or two verses that was missing. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, think about that. Your anger gives opportunity to the devil. If you don't know about that already, pay attention to that. Just watch what happens around your anger and watch the temptations that come and watch how Satan messes with everything. Now, if I understand this text right, anger is not a sin. Be angry and do not sin. I can be angry, but not sin. Anger is not a sin. Some of you may think anger is a sin. It's not. But how you deal with anger can be sinful. So be careful. Now, for some of you, anger is totally unacceptable. I grew up in a home where for the women, anger was unacceptable for the men. Totally acceptable. For women, tears and compassion and softness, totally acceptable. For men, totally unacceptable. So, what I learned to do in life was whatever emotion I was feeling, I just covered it over with anger. It was acceptable. And some of you have felt that anger is terribly wrong and you don't have permission for it. And I want to say to you, what you do with that anger matters. It matters even to you. Maybe especially to you. Be careful not to deny your anger, not to dismiss your anger, not to bury it, not to ignore it, not to repress it. Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Begin to deal with it. Deal with it responsibly. Deal with it with God's help. If you need, get some help from some others who understand anger and how to deal with it. Certainly Scripture can help you in that regard. But don't let the sun go down on your anger because if you bury it, if you dismiss it, if you ignore it, if you repress it, then you are giving an opportunity for that anger to morph into the cancer of bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness, and even rage. Those things are sinful. When you feel anger, there's a reason that you feel angry. That reason needs to be examined. Pay attention. That's okay. You need to understand it so you know how to, how to handle it with God's help. Now, there are many forms of anger, and I'm not pretending to be a psychologist. We've got other counselors that are far more gifted in our congregation than I am about that. But I understand category to fit in, uh, anger to fit into two categories. The first is righteous anger. This is anger against wrong. God's anger is righteous anger. It's not immature. It's anger against what is wrong. When there is a wrong done against you or a wrong done against others, it will trigger the feeling of anger in you. That anger is energy. That energy 
wants to act in a right way. Wants that wrong to be made right. Wants us to act with justice. Sometimes wants us to act with vengeance. What we have to remember is we are not God. We are not righteous like God. We will likely devolve down into something else. But that anger, that righteous anger, may lead us to speak up for someone. Ourselves or someone else. Or may lead us to stand up for someone. Or for ourselves. And God may be calling us to do that. And we should do that. If that's what's going on. But we must not allow it to go beyond where God says. We all know the, the, the crazies who bomb abortion clinics. The Word of God says that life is sacred. We can understand that. But God doesn't give us instruction to go bombing abortion clinics and harming people. We are to stand up for justice. But beyond that, God has decreed that He is the ultimate judge. And we must leave it to Him. This is what we read. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The second category of anger is anger is a mask. That is, anger is a secondary emotion covering over all the other emotions that are less acceptable to you or less acceptable to others around you. Oftentimes, anger like this is covering the feeling of powerlessness, fearfulness, anxiety, sadness, tearfulness, grief, being out of control. Could be something else. Anger makes us feel stronger, less vulnerable. Makes us feel like we can do something rather than just sit back and take it. Pay attention to your anger. Ask, what if anything is underneath it? That will help you to identify and face the deeper issue, the cause of that anger. And when you can face the deeper issue with God's help, you can resolve what's going on. Remember, pay attention to your anger. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just an indicator to you, an internal indicator that something needs to be dealt with. And you will be able to resolve whatever's going on with God's help and you will loosen that foothold that the devil would like to take in your life. If your anger is buried, if it festered, if it goes unidentified, then you'll not know how to handle it and you'll not know how to address it. How we deal with our anger impacts how we relate to others. It either diminishes our credibility or it supports our credibility of the message of God's love for them. Now I'm running out of time and I would love to be able to give you more examples and love to be able to dig in more to all of this. 
but I am going to move very quickly through a piece of application that I think is necessary for this issue of political discourse. The rest of the outline from James in this text says essentially be righteous by applying God's word. That we must reject the habits that reflect the patterns of the world and we must fully receive the word of God and live it out. So if you are to enter into political discourse, then follow the scriptural prescription of how to do it. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. And may I add my own emphasis, be even slower to be angry. Now what if after you've listened to them, they won't listen to you? What if they begin to heckle you or attack you or demean you? What then? Well, first of all, if you really heard them and you were able to communicate that back to them, to their satisfaction, not necessarily that you agree with them, but you really heard them and you really see some of the points of that, they will most likely respond back in a similar way. But there is no guarantee for that. So what do you do if they don't? Again, you follow the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? It says that not everyone will receive your witness for Jesus or your words that address the issues of justice that you believe are being faithful to the call of Jesus. Jesus said the world will hate us, reject us, and persecute us, but we must not meet them with the same. We are to pray for them. We are to bless them. We are to turn the other cheek to them. And if necessary, we are to leave them, shaking the dust from our feet and taking our peace and witness elsewhere. That's how we are to engage in this kind of dialogue. What's most important is not the political discourse that you enter into. What's most important is your witness for the gospel, making sure that your discourse with others is done in a manner so that your credibility supports the message of the gospel, God's love for people. Let's pray. Almighty and Heavenly Father, these are contentious times. And we, Lord, want to know how to handle ourselves well in these situations. I pray that you would grant us wisdom through your word and through your spirit. Help us, Lord, to be intentional and to understand that you may be calling us to enter into that, to speak up for a just cause. Or you may be asking us to enter into those discussions because that's where people live and you want us to connect with them. Help us, Lord, to be your emissaries when we do. To never forget, Jesus, that you are the defining relationship in our life. For now and forever. I pray, Lord, that um, you'll watch over us now. I pray that you'll be with us through this political process of voting and election. Pray for your will to be done in all these things and in our lives. According to your plan and purpose, we trust you, Jesus, and thank you for being who you are for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.